Hello and welcome to Talking HE, my name is Santanu Vasant. In this episode we speak to Jenny Blake, Head of Learning and Teaching Development and Academic Lead for Student Success at the University of Manchester. We discuss what it's like to work with students as a third space professional in higher education. We hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Jenny Blake. I'm currently the Head of Teaching and Learning Development at the University of Manchester Library, and I'm also an academic academic lead for student success for the Manchester Institute of Teaching and Learning. So I've got a very uh, sort of library focused hat and then a more university sector focused role um, on top of is like not exactly correct. It is a secondment, but essentially on top of <laughs> uh, the library role as well. Um, I've been in the UK for quite a while now, but I'm originally from the US and a lot. I did a lot of teaching in schools before I moved here. I hadn't actually done, I'd done some teaching in higher education and some sort of interactions with it, but my main focus was in schools until I moved here and I, I sort of happened to get a job at the University of Manchester, um, but like I said, it was a while ago, over a decade. So I've, I've been in higher education and looking specifically at how to support our students to be successful um, in the most sort of inclusive and flexible way possible for quite a long time now. And it's directly led me to the current roles I hold um, because sort of my commitment to making the, the practical possible, you know, the, the things that will effectively, you know, initiate change. Um, I like putting them in place. So um, yeah, I've gotten a chance to do that at Manchester. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you work with students to co-design materials and work with them on projects that you've done at the University of Manchester? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I said before, I came here, I had a, a background in schools. I was also, I have a master's from the University of California, Berkeley, and the focus of that master's was around action research. So the idea there is that as a you know, as a practitioner in a classroom, you would be sort of looking at what you're doing, what your students are doing. And what it did was trained me to think of my students as, you know, an essential part of everything. I, I didn't, I, you know, from the very beginning, I thought of them as the thing that is part, the engine that keeps it going. And um, there was never any doubt that I, I would always reach out to them in whatever I was doing. So when I first got a job at the library, we had um, a group of students that were then called the Student Rovers. They were more sort of meant to be a customer service type role. So they were meant to connect students to the library in a really interesting way to be the face of the library and a voice of the, you know, for the library. But the focus was more around customer service type stuff. They'd be in the buildings, you know, directing or, or interacting that way. I, however, had spent a decade teaching. So we, instead, um, what they ended up doing was um, supporting teaching sessions, you know, training up to deliver them and then working with us to develop them. And they've grown from six to 20 strong. Um, the model that we use in the library is now being replicated in different places in the university. And I think that there's three key areas. One, we demonstrate how much we value them by paying them. <laughs> so uh, it's a casual role. We um, are very flexible about when they come in. They tend to take a couple four-hour shifts a week around their other commitments. Um, you know, we uh, 
we pay them the the national living wage and uh, ensure that it's it's a it's sort of a um, developmental role for them as well. So we deliberately build in uh, experiences for them that they can then take forward as they leave the university. At the same time, though, I go around saying this to everyone. Um, I I could never afford these students once they graduate. You know, the second they graduate, they're well out of the, the budget I would have to employ people to work with me to develop these materials, um, especially 20 of them. So first thing first is we we value them and we pay them for their time and their expertise and, you know, what they contribute to what we do. The second thing is that um, we 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 work out loud. So one of the things I think is really interesting when we're talking about uh, integrating the student voice into what we do is often it's quite a stuttery conversation. So people are uncomfortable for whatever reason, often, you know, sharing what they're kind of in the middle of thinking with a group of students. They would like the idea to be almost perfected or at least coherent. <laughs> um, by the time you bring students in. But I think what that does is put an artificial barrier between the person sort of leading the work and the students who are then brought in. And instead what happens, um, you know, inside our team, the library is that we have a, a process that has us creating in public almost uh, as part of a, a team space and the student team are involved in that from the start so they see us fumbling around for learning objectives and thinking about activities and they contribute at every single level so instead of them having to align themselves to whatever we the assumptions we made um, about what needs to be done they're there at the at the very ground you know level helping us build whatever it is and I think that's a significant difference in perhaps the more consultation model that is often the case when we when we talk to students. And then I think the one of the other things is quite early on uh, in my time at the library, we committed to being quick. Um, students are asked constantly about, you know, what would be better for the next cohort or how did it go for you, but we can't change it because it's over <laughs> or whatever. And so mm -hmm. to differentiate a little bit, you know, the library service. One thing that we made quite clear is that if they told us, we would try and deliver it in that semester, as long as there was more than like a week left in the semester. Um, and this had most to do with our self-selecting sort of open support. So, you know, students coming to us and saying they needed help in various academic skills or information literacy. But what they told us they needed, we worked with them to create and then deliver within the time that they needed it. And I think, I think that that gave us a lot of um, that, it, you know, it sort of created this sort of um, community of trust around the library mm -hmm. and students knew that we valued who they were. We're going to pay them for their time. We in, we didn't just invite them in to hear what they thought about something, but that they would be involved from the very beginning and that whatever they were involved in or whatever they needed, we would try to get to them as they needed it. And we were in a really privileged position to be able to do that. I, you know, it was a new team. We were directed specifically at what we knew was a gap, you know, in, in sort of the university provision. Mm -hmm. So we had a very clear remit and we're able to fulfill it. But I, I do think when we're thinking about integrating students into what we do, um, sometimes we take a long time to produce something with them and some things can be you know like a, a massive review of something that could take a while but sometimes one of the best things you can do is is iterate very quickly with them to get whatever it is that they need to them <laughs> you know when they need it and then i think if as you build that community of trust you know you they'll reach out and they'll they'll want to help you help other people they'll want to join in and do more with you you know they get intrigued by the concepts you're talking about and then um 
that kind of information expertise and obviously gets transmitted out to their other groups. Um, so it's not only members who, of the you know, student body or our student team who've worked with us who now know what the library does, but you know quite a few students who've known someone who worked with us or things like that. Um, so you can kind of get, everyone can kind of get a feel for the ethos that you're committed to um, when you work like that. Have these initiatives changed the perception of the library and what it can offer? I think so. I think now people are naturally looking to the library for things perhaps beyond, you know, the, the simplistic, like, can I get the journal article or book I need? Can I sit down somewhere and, and revise? Um, yeah. As always, especially because Manchester is so large, you can't always guarantee that a student, so if you go up to a student and be like, how did the library help you this year? They'll be like, oh, I, I didn't see them. I used that My Learning Essentials thing. You're like, yeah, that's, that is the library. <laughs> but I'm glad you used it. Thank you. Um, so, you know, mm. it, it, you don't always get the communication perfect when you're talking to them. But we do get students you know, turning to the library and members of staff turning to the library that I think, you know, wouldn't necessarily have done that before. And I used to make jokes with, um, you know, some people at the library that we would go to these big university presentations about things and constantly be raising our hands and be like, and the library, <laughs> um, what about us? We do that too. Um, and so the first three, four years uh, I was in post and we were kind of forming my learning essentials, especially there was a lot of that, like, don't forget, we do this thing. Now we have a presence, you know, across massive university initiatives. We're, um, you know, naturally a part of the Institute of Teaching and Learning. You know, we've had fellows um, be part of that since they launched their fellowship program. Our, our guidance for inclusive teaching materials is used throughout the uni. You know, our model for student partners is being used. So um, it's really has changed what people think, you know, a library should or could do. And it's also allowed us to move beyond just reminding people that we're there, um, which I think you can get into if you're a support service. You know, you can get into this weird pattern where it's just like, oh, it's enough. They know I'm here. Um, actually, we kind of established that like that's sort of our baseline. <laughs> we want people to, of course, assume the library should be involved and then talk to us about how that might work. What would be your top tips or words of advice for people who want to do similar things in their institutions? So I think there's a couple of things. One, especially in the current sort of environment and drive towards working more inclusively, you can't be inclusive if you're not consistent. So whatever you create, if you have a strong commitment to being inclusive, you have to build a system and a series of processes that also allow it to be consistent. You know, you can't only have inclusive teaching materials in one small area. I mean, you can, but it's not a successfully inclusive program that way. You know, it's, it's sort of a pilot maybe of what you could do. So you need to build in um, almost the sustainability and flexibility to allow for consistent equitable experience for whomever is interacting with whatever you're doing. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is you, absolutely if you if you have the capacity to if you know you're able to bring students in who will stick with you. So we will often have students sign up to be on the student team or uh, interview to be on the student team when they're first year and then stay with us through their PhD, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, and occasionally their fifth year of their PhD or whatever and beyond. So um, we've hired those students to be our interns. Some of our those interns are now part of the team. So if you can um, if you can create this kind of very long tail process where you get students who are committed and understand, then you can move beyond the, the always the consultative. Let me explain to you what you think kind of model and it can make a massive difference in what you're doing. 
I think too, um, if I'm thinking about it, you need to be able to um, structure what you're doing in such a way that it flexes to the cohorts that need you. So one of the nice things about my learning essentials is that it's both something you can put inside a module. You know, we can deliver something. You can embed it into an online uh, resource. We have loads of those or and usually as a wraparound there is the self-selecting you know open synchronous sessions that either help a student who needs more explaining or one who missed something out or for whatever reason it's not present in their module and it allows for multiple ways but it's all the same materials so it flexes to what the you know the cohort or the university needs but it doesn't put too many demands on us you know it's not an impossible ask for us as a team so if you can come up with a way to be consistent with your process and and with your um, structure to get that long-term relationship with students and then to create something that can flex without overwhelming you know um, I think you're you'll be well on your way to being able to kind of leverage your expertise you know and make it accessible to as many people as possible but also like evidence it because I think in the third space again um, you know thinking about having to say and the library it, when we're inhabiting this third space we can get into this awkward justification cycle where it's like oh no you need us because we do this that and the other and I, you know I can definitely help and it can it can feel like we must perform to, to you know to justify our existence we don't need to do that we're confident that what we provide is excellent and it can do what it needs to do for who you know for who it needs it at the time and then we can also because we're structured we can gather the data then to evaluate and then make assertions so i think it also it just helps you inhabit that space a bit more comfortably where it's we all we obviously desperately want to help but at the same time we're not waiting to be asked you know we've created these things that we're confident in so when someone does come for help we can provide that um, maybe instead of being quite so reactive as you might uh, sometimes be in our space. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about inhabiting the third space that you mentioned just a moment ago? Yeah so I mean it can get awkward. <laughs> I think whenever you are a couple of things so whenever you are slightly um, divorced from the sort of uh, you know the the absolute core of teaching and learning which is modules you know courses that are delivered to students on a program so whenever you're slightly divorced from that you know you're not involved in the course design stage you're not constantly delivering you're not necessarily helping with the assessment all of that kind of thing um there can be then a disconnect between this is like much like bringing a student in when you get brought in and how much you can help depending on the process and structure and assumptions of those people running the program or designing the mm. course or delivering the module and I think what we've established is that one way to go about either doing an end run around some of those barriers or um, you know effectively knocking them down is to have something that's so robust it's almost you know it's it's easier to use our stuff than not so whereas previously i think you know some people would have been like oh right the library uh i should probably do a reading list and then may or may not get to that now because people are used to us being around delivering this it's like oh of course if i want to support my students with their academic writing i will go embed whatever it is the library is doing i will you know let my advisees as an academic advisor know about the synchronous sessions that happen and I will also tell them about the drop in. So it's it's just it's much easier. We've smoothed the path to engage with us um, by being very, very clear and having a set of principles like core principles you can always rely on. So our stuff will always be, you know, demand driven. 
So we don't go, I think you need. We need evidence that shows someone needs whatever it is. It will always be highly interactive and we do our best to kind of push pedagogy um, you know, right up to the edge and we deliver some um, credit bearing courses and then across all of our support services. So mm -hmm. it's always you know, interactive and engaging. Um, and then finally, we always know it should be us delivering it. So we try very hard not to duplicate what might be present across the university. Um, and there's, you know, there's a number of reasons for that, but the number one of them is, is if we aren't the content experts in it, like we should probably let them, <laughs> you know, whoever it is, deliver that thing. And as we've become more aware of what's going on, because we have this default question, like what else is happening at the uni, we've gotten better integrated with what else is happening at the uni. So it has a knock on effect, even though it feels like you might be saying no with that question, like should it be us or someone else doing it? Asking that question every time, having it be a part of your sort of first principles means that we, you know, we are almost, it's possible we are more aware than the majority of the university about what's going on in the majority of the university because we by default seek it out. Um, mm. So yeah, um, I think it can be, it can be a weird space to inhabit though, can't it? Yes, yeah, no, definitely. Why do you think more staff don't work with students? So it depends on obviously which groups of staff you're talking about. I think it depends on a number of things. I mean, uh, this will date the podcast, but obviously with all of the industrial action happening right now, like workload is clearly a concern. We are being asked, everyone, myself included, are being asked to do you know, infinitely more with, with not much <laughs> um, resource. And there's a lot of drivers for that, you know, and a lot of people who are kind of making it happen or not helping it or whatever. But I think that some of it's a capacity issue. So if all you have time to do is, is you know, do your teaching and mark your assessments, that's all you have time to do. Your The structure is not in place to support sustainable co-creation with your students. So that's one issue. I think the second issue might be around, and this is less so than it was 10 years ago when I started this, but there is another issue around people being a little uncomfortable because of the way we've created the hierarchy in universities where we can get a little, we can talk down to our students sometimes and be a bit like, oh yes, well, you know, when I was your age or I know what you need because I know for whatever reason. Um, and because of that, accepting someone as an equal and, and giving them the power to have an equal voice, which is how co-creation works best, I think, can be quite uncomfortable. Um, you know, if you start thinking about, you know, if you might have read things around Bell Hooks or Audre mm. Lorde and you're thinking about how important it is that people be able to speak up and speak out, and then you realize that your whole job, perhaps as a lecturer, is talking, <laughs> you know, to this cohort. It might be research in other aspects, but you know, your general way of working with this group is to talk at them um, and maybe invite their questions, but that's different. It can be very uncomfortable to sit down and force yourself to listen and listen and then maybe not even compromise, but just put their, prioritize what they're saying. So I think that some of it is that, in fact, a lot of it is the system doesn't allow for it, but some of it is a basic level of discomfort with sort of seeding hard one in a lot of cases, you know, hard one expertise and power to a group where you're on, you're unsure of what the outcome will be. And if your outcome is being, you know, used to drive a marketplace, then the risks are even greater because if it goes wrong, you know, the knock on effect for everyone could be significant. So there are so many things 
putting pressure on um, having a true kind of co-creation relationship with students or third space staff. I mean, it's, it's the same for working with the library. You know, it, um, it might be a little bit easier and we are certainly, you know, we're, we're there and we're all being paid and all that kind of thing. But if you don't have time and if the, if, you know, if the result could be that it will, your, you know, your unit evaluation questionnaire might be worse or the NSS score might go down and, and that will matter, you know, the risk is significantly higher than it would be in, you know, some kind of more idealistic, optimistic world <laughs> um, where we are allowed to experiment and exceed and, and put value on the uh, process as well as the output, you know, mm. as well as the output of the assessment yeah. or the evaluation or whatever it is. Yeah. So, you know, we're not there as a sector. We could be there. We are there in pockets. Um, and a lot of that's down to how amazing a lot of our students are. But uh, there's a lot of things on the outside, you know, making this quite difficult for people. Hmm. That's a very good way of putting it. I mean, if you think about the way all this intersects too, so if we're talking about students as co-creators, but also that power dynamic and the third space and everything like that, if you're thinking about what we need in the sector a little bit and what we're like, again, advocating for right now, people need space and they need agency. So you need space to bring your whole self. And one thing that I think is very interesting, I'm doing some work on academic advising as well right now, is that we make an assumption that people come to university and almost leave their community behind. Oftentimes the community that supported them into getting into uni. So you're suddenly 18 and we move you out of wherever you happen to be. We put you in halls with other people. Not that that's bad, but we do that. We physically separate you on some level in a lot of cases. Um, and then when we advise you, support you and teach you, we teach you as if you're a single point of like a single star in the galaxy. That's it. We're only teaching this one point of light. Realistically, I think, obviously, you know, each person contains multitudes, if we want to quote Whitman. You know, they are everything they've experienced and every person they've touched for their whole lives. But at university, we, we demand that they somehow then isolate themselves. And I think a lot of the problems we run into is because, especially at a big university like Manchester, where it is very difficult, we don't know how to allow people the space to bring the, the, you know, the entirety of their self in, the community that might have supported them and that they may go to rejoin. And we make this demand that they, you know, they, they mask or they imitate quite middle class, you know, aspirations and assumptions around how you behave at university and things like that. So they, they don't have the space. We need to figure out a way to create space so people can bring the whole of themselves. And then they don't have agency. There's not enough flex in oftentimes in our modules assessments or even in our support services. You know, the if you don't have enough time, the easiest thing to do is just tell someone what they need to know. You don't have no, you don't have time. You need to just tell them. And it's sometimes the most helpful thing to do. You know, you're like, well, this is the answer. That's short term most helpful. Long term most helpful, as all of us know, in a higher education and an education in general, is allowing something to go on a journey and learn something, like really learn it, not just listen to an answer. Mm -hmm. uh, but that requires agency and a way to sort of shape their own experience in the sector. And um, we just again there are so many forces you know working against that being a possibility there are uh, you know there are professional bodies making requirements there's like constantly changing metrics <laughs> um, there's metrics that never never seem to go away but are yet totally inaccurate anyway so there's a lot going on and 
again, the risk to giving someone that agency and having the output be a failure, even if the process isn't, you know, even if they learnt the thing, is is too high. It's too high. It you know it it is a significant risk both for the student and for the university. Mm. So mm. we we haven't figured out a way. I think we can figure out a way to to be more inclusive and and create this space for people to really be who they are. The agency one is going to require places like Manchester, I think, you know, that are a bit bigger and have more, you know, brute force almost. <laughs> They've got more weight. They can do more. I think that it, on some level, it's going to need places like Manchester or the OU, you know, um, some of the really interesting stuff happening at the post 92s all to kind of happen together so that we can get uh, you know, a level of speed going in a direction of travel that we like and kind of bend the rest of the sector around that. Otherwise, I think we're going to be constantly you know, reacting to these metrics and trying to concede our community um, to these assumptions that are being made elsewhere. And, uh, you know, this will surprise no one who's ever heard me talk, but I, I'm, I'm not from the UK. Oxford and Cambridge are amazing. I but I genuinely don't understand exactly why Manchester needs to, you know, look at itself as if it could be Oxbridge. I don't understand. If I was doing a study, I would never, I, you know, you don't try and measure apples against oranges and be like, these are the same. They can both be, they can both be a vegetable. It just doesn't make sense. So I wish that there was a way for the university to have space to be itself and the agency to kind of set its own set of criteria and say like this is success at Manchester you know we're a vibrant and exciting and innovative space to be you can be a vibrant and exciting and innovative student here and this is the kind of thing you'll create but then you kind of run up against that you know NSS or what does it mean to have a good degree all these other assumptions mm. that get wrapped around HE yeah. and it's yeah. so hard <laughs> yeah it's a very interesting piece as we go into a new phase of this pandemic People have had time to reflect on the limitations that they've had in terms of space pedagogically to teach at a distance. I think what mm. so it's so interesting what you just said, because the other thing we tend to do is replicate our own experience, right? You mm. were taught a certain way university. That's what you expect university to be. When you become an academic, you teach that way. Um, and so um, COVID, I think, is a massive interruption. <laughs> Uh, to that sort of perpetual cycle of doing what was done to me to the next group of students. And I do think we improve, obviously. We improve and we think about it and people care about their teaching. But on some level, it's really difficult to break out of the like, well, this is what it was and this is what it is kind of model or mode. And I think you're right. Like this, the pandemic has been a massive, fault, like just a screeching halt to that kind of cycle and demonstrated you know what else is possible and also some of the power some of our assumptions about what makes it good you know what made a lecture a good way to teach I think have been revealed to be assumptions around the wrong thing you know it might have been it might have been quite focused on the lecturer being you know a dynamic and interesting speaker which is a good thing but also mm. we found out people just like breathing next to someone else you know <laughs> you like inhabiting on some level it's helpful sometimes to inhabit the same space and try and learn together and it's more difficult but not impossible to do that virtually together and i think it will help us not immediately we're all still very tired um, but as we move forward i think it will help us understand you know where to put our effort 
one of the things that is true of the, what we deliver for My Learning Essentials in the library is that it started with one training room in the Allen Gilbert Learning, Learning Commons, which is a lovely building, but it only holds 35 and there are over 40,000 students. So um, my rule was if it was going to happen in the training room, it had to be something that had to happen in person. So no direct instruction, hardly any at all, no lecturing, nothing where you could read it yourself and learn it that way. It had to be stuff that was interactive and required the input and reflection and um, sort of mirroring of others, you know, going through the same thing with you. And I think if that was a luxury I had, I could just kind of be like, eh, no, <laughs> like you want to use my fancy new room? This is what you're going to do. But um, I think it will help us moving forward if we think, okay, space is going to become limited on campus. Like at some point, you know, we can't expand universities infinitely in terms of their physical footprint. And the OU has shown us that you don't need to. So then we think about, okay, why do we come together? What happens when we come together? What do we wrap around that session when we're together, whether it's virtually or not, you know, whether it's physically on campus or just virtually synchronous um, to make that as fruitful and effective as possible. And people have been working in this for, you know, decades now, but um, I think it, it, you know, it's given a push to that kind of discussion at a, you know, a more modular level, more people are comfortable thinking about that, hopefully, mm. we hope. Yeah. yeah. I guess if there was one thing that I, if, you know, if I was talking to someone who, who was feeling like they couldn't do it, you know, like there's no way, I'm not at Manchester, I don't have the resources to pay the students, I don't have the, I think that what you need to find then are sort of the principles that you're committed to. So if you're thinking about my, you know, that space, the training room, we're committed to being interactive, welcoming and effective, like people leave with something to do, you know. Um, if you can come up with your own set of first principles and start chipping away, you know, in whatever way you can at adhering to them, I think what people forget is that you know, a, a rock doesn't suddenly start rolling down a mountain. It has to pick up speed <laughs> and energy from somewhere. And the, the more clear you are about your direction and the easier it is for you to get back on the right path by having something like a set of criteria or principles, you know, the more effective you will be at hitting whatever your final goal is. And I think too many people look at their final goal and see it, it's like really far away or it's such a big thing or whatever. And I think if, you know, if my career has shown anything, it's that you could get hired to deliver couple academic writing sessions a week and you know end up you know end up in in charge of a lot of the teaching and learning support at a university just by being super clear that actually you've got a bigger thing but you're going to take it one step at a time mm -hmm. um, and I, I do think we're so tired so sometimes all you can do is put one foot in front of the other and the best way to do that is figure out what direction you actually want to go <laughs> you know so you don't look up and you're like oh man oops <laughs> I yeah. should have or I could have Thank you to Jenny Blake for her time. If you've got a comment or a suggestion for a future episode, then please tweet us at TalkingHEPod or email santanu at santanuvasant.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. I've been Santanu Vasant, and this has been Talking HE.